All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Uh, we're continuing our series, uh, The Love Command, in the New Testament. And we've been looking at the uh, central call for the Christian life to love each other. And, you know, one of the recurring themes of this series has been how challenging this can be. I think in every message we've talked about how hard it is to love well. And this morning we're going to come face to face with a command that at first glance seems to be way beyond our ability. Uh, a couple summers ago, our family was on vacation in Durango, Colorado, and I got a chance to sneak away for about a half day to go mountain biking at the bike park. And this is like a really nice bike park. If you don't know, sometimes they have these parks where you take a ski lift up and it takes up your bike, and you sit on the lift, and so you don't have to do any climbing. You just go downhill all day. And so it's a really nice park. I was really excited to be there. And so I get on the lift, and, and I'm riding up with this couple, um, this, this married couple, and, and we begin to start talking. We're chatting about riding, and they find out that it's my first time at this park. And so I ask them, you know, like, oh, so what are, you know, what are the best trails? Like, can you give me any suggestions or recommendations? And they were really nice, so they just said, hey, you know, we'll just show you around. First, run down, why don't you just follow us, and we'll kind of give you the lay of the land. And I thought, great, okay, this will be a good way for me to get started. So anyway, we, can, we continue our, our ride up the lift, and as we begin to talk about uh, mountain biking and, and talking about our ride, it starts to become very clear to me that these two riders are, are way better than I am. Like, they're talking about the kinds of, all the different bike parks they had been to that summer. They'd been to six different places in Colorado and Utah, and they're telling me about all these double black diamond trails they've done and these huge jumps that they're doing. And I realized that I am not up to par. These types of trails are not what I ride. The skill and speed that they clearly ride with are so far above my level that if I rode with them, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get hurt, or they're going to have a miserable time you know, showing me around on something that's you know, way below their level. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just getting more and more intimidated by the prospect of riding with them, and I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this without embarrassing myself. Well, finally, we get to the top, and I haven't figured out how to get out of this. So they're like, all right, man. Like, Let's go, just follow us down, are you ready? And I just had to basically, with my tail between my legs, be like, hey, you guys go ahead. You're definitely way better than I am. I'm gonna go on something easier. And they're like, okay, all right, we thought you were good because you have a nice bike and you have nice gear, but go ahead. <laughs> well, in the Gospel of John, uh, we find what I think is, is maybe the most challenging version of the love command in scripture because we are called to follow someone who is loving way beyond our level. John 15, verse 12, Jesus, the most perfect, loving person in history, says this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This isn't hard enough, because after this, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that is an intimidating passage. Love the way Jesus loved. See, we know what verse 13 means when he says, you know, greater love has no one than this than to 
lay down one's life for one's friends because Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to die a painful, horrific death for you and for me. And he's got this in mind as he says to us, love the same way I do. Follow me down this pathway, this trail of love. And so it can be tempting to read a passage like this and think, you know what, Jesus, you go ahead. I'm going to do something easier. If that's beyond me, it's tempting to feel discouraged or incapable or again intimidated in the face of a command like this. Here's the thing, guys. There's no other way down the mountain for us. This isn't like an optional choice. Jesus says this is the nature of the Christian life, to love this way. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so we want to wrestle with this passage together this morning and continue to wrestle with the challenge of growing as loving people and becoming so loving that we could read a passage like this and say, okay, I might not be there right now, but I understand what Jesus means, and I can embrace what he's saying. And so we want to kind of answer two questions this morning. It is, what does Jesus mean? What does he actually mean, love as I loved? I mean, in real life, everyday life, we can't possibly lay down our life the way he did all the time. Right? You can lay down your life for your friends one time. And so how do we do this? What is this supposed to look like? And the second question is, is is this possible for us? Is this actually something that we can do in real life, in practical ways? And to answer those questions, we need to look at Jesus' love command. We need to look at this, this short passage in John 15 in its larger context. Because this isn't just some random thing that Jesus says out of nowhere. He doesn't stand up and say, all right, love as I've loved. Lay down your life. Let's go home. Instead, this command takes place in the middle of a larger conversation, a really important conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And this conversation is called the Farewell Discourse. And that's because it takes place on the night before Jesus' death. And so this is really kind of this, this last conversation, this last moment that Jesus has with his disciples, with his friends. This last chance he has to kind of give them one last piece of guidance to teach them, to prepare them for his death, to prepare them for their mission of building the church. And so this is a really telling conversation because what we see that as Jesus kind of leaves them with this one last piece of wisdom and guidance, we have five chapters, John 13 to 17, really the thing that holds together this whole conversation is this simple idea, is love one another. That's really Jesus' last piece of guidance. He says, before I go, don't forget, this is what it's all about. This is what I've called you to do. And what's important is that he doesn't just tell them to do it. He doesn't just say, love people. He actually shows them what he wants them to do, shows them what this might look like. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 13. This is a really familiar passage. It's a beautiful picture of love. And this is really, I think, the passage that sets up what Jesus is going to say in John chapter 15. So John 13, verse 1. 
It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So clearly, this is a powerful action, a powerful image. And what Jesus is doing here is he is creating a moment for the disciples to remember, something for them to hold on to. Uh, this is something psychologists call a flashbulb memory. So something that you just remember really vividly in great detail, it's just kind of seared into your mind. Uh, most people who were alive uh, for 9-11 have kind of a flashbulb memory about where you were when you found out it happened. Maybe you have a flashbulb memory about uh, when your kids were born or, or when you graduated from high school or, or when you had a, like a traumatic accident. Uh, I have a flashbulb memory about a time when my mom got a huge gash on her leg and she needed to get stitches. And this happened because she was looking for a toy airplane of mine that had fallen into the ivy in our front yard and so she's walking on this skinny wall, and she slips, and she slices open her leg. And I remember this vividly. I know you do, too. Is that, well, maybe not anymore, but you used to remember it. But I remember the, the, all the blood and how gross it was. I remember the towel she had on it to keep the bleeding. I remember how bad I felt because she was looking for my airplane. And so whenever I think about how much uh, my mom did for me as a kid, how much she loved me, how much she sacrificed for me, I think about that memory. I can see it in my head. And so Jesus is, is really intentional with this moment. He does something memorable because he wants his disciples to hold on to this. And he does something that would shock and, and probably even disturb these disciples. John describes this event in, in careful detail. So you can tell that John, who is there, John, one of the twelve, John, one of the most trusted disciples of Jesus, he remembers this. 
And he writes that Jesus got up in the middle of dinner. So he hasn't even finished eating yet. Jesus gets up. He says he removes his outer clothing and, and wraps a, a towel around his waist. You can imagine, right? Like, this is Jesus. And the disciples are probably watching this happen, thinking, what is he doing? Maybe a little afraid to ask. John writes that he then pours water into a basin, and he gets down on his knees, and he actually begins to wash his disciples' feet. And and again, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the disciples' reactions, right? Like, how are they feeling? What are they thinking about? And in typical Peter fashion, he's the only one to respond. And so he says, Jesus, are you serious? Jesus, what are you doing? You, Jesus, are going to wash my feet? No way. See, at this time, someone like Jesus would never wash someone's feet. This is a humiliating, lowly, disgusting act. You know, people walked around in sandals all the time and, you know, dirt roads. It's dirty. It's muddy. Feet get sweaty, there's animal poop on the roads, and so, I mean, it's gross. If you ever wore flip-flops, you know, on a dusty road, I don't know, that's gross enough. But think about how disgusting this would be after days and days and days of walking around in these sandals. And so this was something that a person who had any amount of authority or power or respect or honor, there's no chance that they would do this. This was the job of a servant or a slave. And yet, this is what Jesus does. And this is the picture he wants to paint as he begins to show the disciples the importance of love. He's showing them this is what love actually looks like. And I want to highlight two important aspects of what Jesus is doing here. First, this is a delivering love. At the heart of this simple act is Jesus seeing a simple need, seeing a problem, and meeting that need. Uh, There's a book I've been reading for a long time. I I might teach a class on it in the next couple years uh, called Kingdom Ethics by David Gushy and Glenn Sasson. And they spend a chapter basically defining the biblical concept of love. They try to search throughout the Bible to figure out what what does love in the Bible actually mean. And there's obviously a lot of aspects of love. All right. Okay, so the basic foundation of delivering love is first, love sees with compassion and enters into the situation of persons in bondage. And second, love does deeds of deliverance. So love sees a need, love sees a problem, love feels compassion and does something about it. And so Jesus is demonstrating this simple process, right? He, he loves his disciples and he sees this simple thing, they're sitting at dinner and he can see everyone's feet are dirty and he sees this messiness, he sees this dirtiness, he sees this problem with compassion and care and so he moves towards them, he gets on his knees and he says, I want to make you clean. And on one hand, this is countercultural and shocking, but on the other hand, it is really this kind of basic menial problem that has a simple solution and Jesus cares enough to help. And so Jesus' love is a delivering love. Uh, The second thing I want to highlight is that this is a self-giving love. Uh, Jesus wants the disciples, he wants us to see that sometimes serving the needs of others means that we have to give something of ourselves. 
what ultimately makes this moment so powerful is Jesus' choice to set aside himself. I think it's interesting that John tells us in verse 3, right before Jesus begins to do this, he says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him all the power, had given him all the authority. Why do you think John thinks, as he, he writes this story, as he remembers what's happening, why do you think he says, let me just throw this in here, this, this little random aside, why am I going to point out to you that Jesus in this moment knows that he's worthy of worship, he's worthy to be served, he's worthy to be waited upon, because he wants us to see how loving it is that Jesus sets all that aside. He flips everything upside down. He gives up his right to have his feet washed, to be served by others. And he sets aside his pride. He sets aside his ego. He sets aside his position and power, all the things that he deserves. And he loves out of his own power. He loves sacrificially. And so this is a flashbulb moment, right, where Jesus says, this is what my love is like. And in case you've forgotten, I mean, this is really what I've been doing with you disciples for the past three years. This is what I've been showing you about what it means to love people. I've shown you delivering love. I've shown you self-giving love. We've seen this in, in the way we've loved people together. Think about all these people we've gone to, the poor, the sick, the blind, the leper, the outcast. All these people who we've loved, we've served their needs. We've seen their messiness, their dirtiness. You were probably a little disgusted at the people we, we went to go love, but we love them anyway. Jesus says, this is what I've been teaching you all this time. You know all these stories I've been telling you? The parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember that one? The parable of the prodigal son. Remember when I, I stood up and I, I gave that long sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Peter? You were falling asleep during that, but this is what I was talking about. Do good to others. Go and meet needs in a real and tangible way, even when it has a cost, even when it's your enemy, even when it's somebody you don't like or who doesn't like you, even when it hurts. Go love people. See, the act of feet washing here is about more than washing feet. It's about remembering what Jesus was about. It's about him kind of summing up all that he had done and all that he had been in this, in this one moment. Now, in verse 14, he does something else. He takes it a step further. He says, look, here's why I'm reminding you this. This is actually what I really want you to remember. He says this, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. So Jesus says, well, what I just did for you, do it for each other. Go do it for others. And I want you to notice that there's an important parallel here between John 13 and that love command we began with in John 15. Remember, he says this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And we see that this is basically the same thought, the same command, as he gives in John 13, as I have washed your feet, 
you should wash each other's feet. As I have loved you, love each other. See, what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's drawing a clear parallel between the cross and this basin. Between the ultimate act of sacrificial love, laying down his life in the most excruciating way possible, and this small, simple act of sacrifice, of just, just washing someone's dirty feet. He's saying those two acts, they have the same shape. They follow the same pattern. This is the same type of delivering, self-giving love. And you know, obviously washing feet and going to the cross are very different things. Very different costs. Very different needs are being met. But he says it's the same heart that leads you to both of those. And so as he washes the disciples' feet, he's saying, hey, here's a tangible picture. Here's how you can love like me. It's not just the cross. It's not just that, that you always have to love with that kind of intensity. It's not that you always have to sacrifice that much. But it's that you love according to this pattern. More often than not, it's not going to be the grand gesture. It's going to be these small acts of love, small acts of service that you do for each other, that you do for people who are in need. This is the kind of love that would become the hallmark of the early church. If you read through the book of Acts, you see this delivering, self-giving love over and over and over again. I think it's interesting that in the book of 1 John, this is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to the early church. He takes this pattern and he applies it to a new situation. A struggle with poverty within the early church. Brothers and sisters within the church who, who are, aren't able to meet their own needs. And so in 1 John 3.16, the apostle writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Same pattern, same exact idea. And so he says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, no compassion for them. How can the love of God be in that person? This is Christ-like love. This is what it's all about, delivering love, self-giving love. It's about seeing people with compassion, caring about their needs, their brokenness, their messiness, their poverty, and to meet those needs in real, tangible ways. And sometimes that's going to be in big ways. Sometimes it's going to be in small ways. But loving as Jesus loved, at the end of the day, is about developing this kind of heart. It sees these needs and loves in this way. Loves our, our families this way. Loves our friends this way. Loves this way in our church communities. Loves this way outside of our church walls. Loves this way even with, again, our enemies. We view all people through this lens. I think that's what it means to love as Jesus loved. Now, I think this is obviously helpful, right? It gives us a tangible, practical picture of, of loving like Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's still not easy. It's not as if we've reached a point where we would look at this and say, okay, I'll, I can do that all the time, easy. I don't mind giving up all of myself for people. This is still hard, and we still have to wrestle with this question, right? Is this possible for us? How far... Can I go with this? Can I do this regularly? 
How can I be the kind of person who loves this way? How can I, I give of myself, sacrificially give of my time, my ego, my pride, my comfort? How do I care about someone's needs that much the way Jesus did? How can I do this, this joyfully and, and humbly? Uh, in his book, Love Like That, Dr. Les Parrott takes on this exact question, and he says this, I can answer this question of how to be more self-giving in a single phrase, put yourself in another's shoes, or better yet, a single word, empathy. And I think Dr. Parrott is, is right on the money with this. When it comes to loving others, when it comes to this series, all this stuff that we've been talking about, I'm not sure there's any characteristic, there's any skill, there's any relational ability that's more important than empathy. And Dr. Parrott describes the difference between empathy and sympathy this way. He says that sympathy is like you know, standing on the shore and throwing a, a life ring out to somebody who's struggling in the water. You throw it out to them, he says anyone would do this. Empathy is jumping in the water, swimming out to them, bearing the, the crashing, cold, freezing waves, and going to them and bringing them back. Empathy is risky. It's feeling what people feel. It's entering into their world. It's entering into their brokenness. And it's feeling compassion. It's caring. And when you think about it, this is what Jesus meant when he gives us this really simple relational ethic. We all know this one. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. At the end of the day, this is a pattern of empathy. Because what do we have to do to be able to do this, right? We have to be able to consider how that other person might be feeling. Consider what their experience is. Consider what they need. And then we have to ask the question, well, if I was in their position, what would I want? What would I need? How would I feel if I were them? And then here's the really hard part. We have to think, well, if I would care if I was where they are, then I have to care about them now. If I would have a certain feeling, then I have to deal with that. I have to address how they feel. If it would be hard for me, then it's hard for them. And so let me do something for them because I know how I would feel if I was them. We have to care when we know that they care. One of my favorite things that my kids do uh, is it happens kind of whenever they're sad. Whenever one of them's really sad and crying, this typically happens. So say, for example, Kaya uh, is sad about something. She hurts her knee or she's disappointed. And, you know, Alyssa or I is kind of holding on to her as she's crying. And, and Grace sees this. Almost invariably, he sees Kai crying, and he runs back to the back of the house. And my first instinct is always, I always forget, and I'm like, what is he doing? Is he going to go do something bad because our attention is on Kaya? Is he, you know, just kind of uncomfortable with how she's feeling? But then after a minute, he'll come running back out, and he's holding Kaya's blanket, which is kind of her source of, you know, comfort. He says, here, Kaya, here's your blanket. On the flip side, if, if Gray's crying, Kaya goes back. She doesn't run the way Grayson like runs back. Kaya will just kind of walk back, and she'll bring out his blanket or maybe a, a stuffed animal. To hear Gray, and, and you know they kind of snuggle in, and, and they do feel better. And at the heart of this habit is empathy. 
right, this thought, if I were sad, if I was hurting right now, what would, what would I want? What would I want someone to do for me? Well, I would want my blanket. I would want that stuffy. So let me go do that for Kyra. Let me go do that for Grayson. And I love this. Every time they do it, even though it's kind of sort of just a habit now, they do it, you know, out of uh, just routine, I think. But it still kind of makes me tear up a little bit because it is this expression of genuine empathy. And it leads them to do something that's, that's really loving. And that matters. So when we see someone with, with dirty feet, we care. Because we can look at that and say, you know, I don't like having dirty feet. I don't like that feeling at all. I would love it if someone washed my feet. When we see someone hurting or broken on the side of the road, even if it's a Samaritan, even if it's somebody who we don't really like or, or we don't really think would, would want us to help, we might say, well, actually, if I was hurt, I was, if I was lying on the side of the road, I would want anyone to help me. I would want someone to stop. I think this is probably the most important part of loving like Jesus is to have the kind of empathy he had. That even as God in flesh, he could look at a broken person and say, I wouldn't want to feel that way. Now, this is obviously really hard. You know, empathy, as I said, it's risky. If you have empathy, you enter into someone's situation, you, you bear some of the emotional weight, right? You feel what they feel. You're becoming vulnerable. Empathy also means that, that if we do feel something, if we do enter into their world, it's probably going to cost us something. Again, we have to give of our time, our energy, our, our money, our stuff, our pride. But I think the hardest part about empathy is that it runs directly against our most basic sinful instinct, which is to be selfish. This is the most natural thing to feel is to not think about how others feel, but to think about how I feel, to think about what I need. You know whose shoes I want to live in? I want to live in my own shoes. And you know what I want people to do? I want people to think about what I need. I want others to consider what we want them to do for me. I think we spend a lot of time waiting for other people to show us empathy. Right? We're waiting for people to think about, well, how do I feel? How do you think that makes me feel? We're waiting for others to give us what we want. Selfishness says, do unto me what I would have you do unto me. Feel what I feel. Deliver me. Sacrifice for me. And again, this is a natural thing to do. This is all of us. This is sinful flesh within each one of us. But it, again, it prevents us from being empathetic because we're so focused on ourselves. And so Dr. Parrott has this really simple exercise for growing in empathy. It's not really anything crazy or weird, but it's something he calls emptying. And he says it's just about being intentional about emptying ourselves of our need for other people to do what we want. That sounds really simple, but it's pretty profound. That if we can stop living our life, if we can stop viewing relationships through this lens of waiting, will you do what I want you to do. This, this compulsive need we feel to have our own way, 
and to have our relationships revolve around us getting our way. It's about holding our desires loosely and recognizing that I think getting what we want is actually this massive burden. It's a burden that weighs so heavy on us and it kind of makes us miserable because we spend all of our time just, just waiting for something and we're all waiting for it and we're all trying to get what we want and nobody gets what they want. Let me give you a really simple kind of trivial example, but I, I think it illustrates this point well. Uh, when I compare how I drive when I'm late versus when I'm early, it is night and day. Those of you who are kind of crazy impatient drivers, you, you understand what I mean, right? When I'm late, it is all about getting where I need to go quickly, okay? So when I'm on the road, it's about what I want. And so it's so easy to be frustrated, right? Somebody cuts me off, or if, you know, someone's driving like 15 miles per hour below the speed limit, or heaven forbid, it's two lanes, and two people are driving 15 miles per hour below the speed limit, and you're just stuck behind them. I'm so mad. I don't even just get mad at people. I'm mad at st stoplights. Like red lights, like what are you doing? This is personal. I can feel it. The kids are in the car. I'm, I'm just more tense. I'm less talkative because like we got to get here on time. I hate being late, by the way, so I don't know if that factors into it. But it, it, it just weighs on me. It weighs on the way I view every single car and inanimate objects. Everything bears the burden of what I want to happen. But when I'm early... Man, I love driving when I'm early because it, it actually isn't really about getting where I want to go at a certain amount of time. I know I'm going to get there. I'm actually kind of like trying to go a little slower. So I'm like waving people in for no reason. Like, oh, yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. I'm at a red light. There's somebody pulling out. It's like, hey, you guys all just go. I'll wait here. I'll hit the red light. No big deal. I'm happier. I'm chattier. The kids are in the car. We're talking. We're singing songs. Being early is great because the burden of what I want to happen is completely gone. And I'm just naturally nicer. I'm naturally more loving. I'm naturally more giving. This is the same thing that happens in life with our desires. With us living under the burden of what we want. And this can be anything. This can be, you know, attention and affection. This can be money. This can be possessions. This can be whatever. But it's a burden that I guarantee you affects your relationships and ultimately keeps you from experiencing the joy of loving others. Keeps you from the kind of life and goodness that you're meant to experience when you're free from that burden. And so the idea of emptying that Dr. Parrott talks about is just kind of being conscious of the things that we want. What are the things that in my day-to-day -day life, in my relationships, that are kind of driving me? When I come home uh, from work and I'm with my kids, what is it that I want more than how much I want to love them and spend time with them? When I'm with my friends, when I'm with my community, what is it that I want that, that drives me, that drives what I say and how I talk to people and how I hear things. When I'm at work, when I'm at school, when I, wherever, what is that desire that's placing a burden on my relationships? 
if we can be conscious of these things, we can begin to let go of them. Slowly, bit by bit, to begin to set them aside and say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to come home from work today. I'm going to set aside what I want. I'm going to see how that goes. I'm going to see how that feels. See how maybe I'm happier if I'm not so consumed by what I want. I bet you are. Now, again, this doesn't mean that our desires don't matter. I want to be really clear about this. This isn't about self-denial. This isn't saying that you should never get what you want. It's not saying that you can't have dreams or goals or desires. Of course we all do. Jesus did himself. Jesus walked around, and sometimes he said no to people. Sometimes he withdrew from people. It's simply about recognizing that what I want, my desires can't always be first and can't always be only. That we hold our needs and we hold other people's needs and we look at them both and say, well, what do I want to focus on right now? Sometimes it is going to be your needs and that's okay. But a lot of times you're going to realize, actually, this person needs something more than I need something. And I'm going to choose that because that's what Jesus would have done. And then when we do choose what we need, it's okay because we know that we're also choosing what other people need. Now, before we close, I want to go back to John 15 for a second. Uh, This is where we began with this love command, right? Love each other as I have loved you. We've seen what this means. We've talked about how Jesus has modeled it for us. We've talked about this idea of empathy. But John 15 isn't just about what we're supposed to do. And I don't want to miss out on how rich John 15 is. Because ultimately, this chapter is about how we can do it, about the kind of life where this kind of delivering, self-giving love is possible. In verse 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me or abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think this is another familiar passage, and right? Like, love doesn't come from us. We're not the source of love. We're not the source of empathy. That doesn't something we just produce out of our own goodness. Instead, it comes through our relationship with God. It comes through our, through our relationship with Jesus. We have to do life with Jesus. We have to know him. And so this idea of abiding, you know, you know part of it is just experiencing God, right? Like, Spending time in his presence, reading the Bible, praying, doing quiet time. But it's actually much more than that. Let's see what verse 9 says. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So what we see in Scripture is that abiding, remaining in Jesus isn't just this passive experience. It's not that just that we sit around and we sit in a room and, and we wait for God to love us and we say, God, I'm, I'm abiding with you because I'm here. Instead, abiding, a big part of it is active. A huge part of ob- abiding is obedience. It's walking the way Jesus called us to walk, it's going to the places and doing the things that God himself, that Jesus would have been doing if he was walking around in our world right now. And so there's this beautiful idea in John 15 that, you know, Jesus loves us. 
He's brought us into relationship with God, into this nourishing connection with the vine. And this is by grace. It's not anything we earn. It's not anything deserved. He just loves us so much that he died for us so we could be connected to God. But the greatest fruitfulness that we experience comes not from waiting for the vine to do something for us. It happens when we obey. When we try to love, when we try to have empathy and compassion, when we try to serve others. It's when we try to love that this this connection with the vine is at its most fruitful. It's when we do our best to obey that this vitality from the vine is, is most felt. So again, the point isn't that we earn God's power or love. It's simply that we experience him more. We experience him most. We experience the deepest sense of his power when we simply do what he called us to do and go where he called us to be. And I do really believe this. I think as you try to love people, this is born out in experience. You will feel God's presence. You will feel his love the most when you're loving people. We spend a lot of time thinking about this. How can I feel more of God's presence? He says, go love people. That's where I'm at. That's where you'll find me. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, you know, it's easy to be discouraged by the immensity of these commands, but loving the way Jesus loved, we can look at the idea of laying down our life and say, I could never do that. But what Jesus says is just start with small acts of obedience, small acts of love, a little bit of delivering love, a little bit of self-giving love. Just try it. Doesn't have to be big. Just try a little bit and see what happens. See the way you experience relationship with the vine. See how it changes you and transforms you. See the kind of joy you feel when you love people and then try to do a little bit more tomorrow. Try to do a little bit more the next day. And as you do that, you will experience fruitfulness. As you do that, this idea of laying down your life for your friends, someday that's going to make perfect sense to you. Someday that kind of fruit is what you're going to want as you follow Jesus. Let's pray together.